on Sagittarian Matters, witchcraft, magnets, monsters, and masterful words on writing from my guest, Emil Ferris. Stay tuned. Fifteen years ago, Emile Ferris contracted West Nile virus from a mosquito. She said, I woke up in a hospital room three weeks after being admitted. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I couldn't speak and I'd lost the use of my right hand, so I could not draw. At 40 years old, she found herself in a wheelchair with a six-year-old daughter to raise, but she taught herself to draw again, received an MFA in creative writing from School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she drew a 400-page graphic novel called My Favorite Thing is Monsters. Emil said, The virus both impelled and scared me at the same time. I honed my focus and determination, and the book saw me through. The book is a full-color, fictional graphic diary of 10-year-old lesbian werewolf girl Karen Rays, filled with B-movie horror and Pulp Monster magazine iconography, and Karen trying to solve the murder of her upstairs neighbor Anka, a Holocaust survivor, in 1960s Chicago. I highly recommend it. In the meantime, please enjoy my talk with Emil that I had in front of my students at California College of the Arts. My students are all receiving an MFA in comics from CCA, and I thought, who better a guest to speak about perseverance, blending fiction and truth, and more. The audio gets a little crackly because we are on Skype, but I promise it is worth it. Now please enjoy my talk with Emil Ferris. And P.S. Do you think I sound more like Casey Kasem as time goes by? I will take my answer off the air. We have a lot of questions for you. Cam is a troublemaker. I already saw that. Can you believe there's Cam, Sam, and Samia? And I just feel like all the names could kind of just be related after that. Cam, Sam, Tam. Um, Okay, we have a lot of questions for you. Just one quick um, thing. It's about 110 degrees where I live right now because we have no air conditioning. So if you see me like occasionally mopping down, it should all go neat. It's very hot here. I'm a little, a little dazed because of the heat. So just uh, no air conditioner makes me a little crazy, but I'm fine. But please, this will be a cooling breeze of conversation. Well, well, I'll blow on you. Oh, well, that's that's cool. Okay. Well, first of all, we wanted to know, is this a story that you had in your head for a long time? Like, how long did you plan on drawing this story before you actually put pen to paper? Uh, That's a great question. And, you know, I couldn't, I didn't even remember the answer to that question myself uh, until a couple months ago when somebody basically asked me that and I had to think. And what happened was I'm intensely shy. So I decided to battle my shyness by taking acting classes. And I did that, and while I was taking acting classes, I happened to encounter a gentleman who wrote wrote for television. He'd written for HBO. And I was in a class of his in Chicago, and he he said, come up with something. And I I just had this dream, and I'd seen this trans um, 
black trans character whose face was all cut up open uh, a raincoat and let this little lesbian werewolf girl kind of harbor inside of it. I thought, well, that's strange. And then I made up a story that sort of explored what I'd just seen and it incorporated who I am and this beautiful, um, this beautiful, what became a Frankenstein type character. Um, and uh, that's where the story began. And then I wrote it as a short story, which it was fun to write and it kind of didn't do anything. I mean, nobody heard of it and nobody saw it, read it. I, um, it was in an anthology. It was put into an anthology and it sort of died there. And then I actually asked my daughter because she's the smartest, one of the smartest people I know. And she's about, I don't know, I guess she's around 14 at the time. And I said, what story should I start working on? Because I won this little lump sum of money when I left college. Uh, this award and I, I had you know some time because of this money and she said definitely my favorite thing is monsters so mm -hmm. that's why and it, it spoke to me it, it was the most loaded at that time with uh, stuff wiped down yeah what are you attracted to in a story like what story you know like when you have a bunch of stories in a row and and one of them feels the most loaded is it loaded like emotionally for you based on your memories or based on the potential of it or based on the characters or based on how you want to draw it? You know, I think it's really interesting and I think that it's so hard for writers because you get so much advice and it's just almost like being in a car wash where there's, you know, different things coming in, beating you, whipping you, you know, it's like, you know, you're constantly batted around and I would say, you know, to anybody who's thinking I might provide them some information, here's the good news. You have a magnet inside of you that will draw stories to you. But I think there's a very natural thing that happens. You know what's intriguing to you because you almost get a frisson of what I would say is almost sexual excitement. It's something so akin to that and you know that's the material. You can feel it. And I guess, uh, you know, you have things you respond to differently. I have a lot of different stories in the hopper right now, but some of them I respond to intellectually. Some of them I respond to with an emotional response, and some goes all, it's all chakras. It's an all chakra highway or chakra highway. So I think this one was an all chakra moment. And you'll know it when you hit it. You'll feel it because you can just dive into that world and find things and keep finding. I think that's so valuable. I don't know if you guys do this. Go to a thrift shop. Go to a thrift shop, which I think is like the best place in the world to find things for stories, to find ideas, because you're going to see everybody's cast-offs. You're also going to see things that people got rid of, photographs, all kinds of things that have memory associated with them. It's one of the best places to find memory items. And, and imagine as you're writing a story, look around you, take as many objects as you're attracted to and ask yourself, well, how do they relate to your story? That's one way to get your story bigger, you know, because then you'll say, well, this is so-and-so's thing that they most cherished. And then you'll start to understand that character more. So I'm, I'm giving you that as, um, that's what I literally do that every day. It's insane, right? That's why you can only see this much from my house. Okay, that's all you're allowed to see. Well, so I know that you took, you have an MFA in creative writing. How did you apply that to comics? Because um, also, 
your book is fictionalized, but some of it is based on your real life. And right now we've been practicing getting down details from our real lives. And our hope in this class is to be able to use some of those details or some of that practice in fiction writing. Right. I think that that's excellent. And there's nothing, the fusion of the truth into your fiction, I mean the truth, what is truth, right? But the fusion of your memory into fiction is so incredibly rich. And there's something magical that happens. People sort of know when it's true. And they sort of don't know, too, because you don't really know. I mean, you're making this up, and it becomes alive. It starts accreting reality, or it starts accreting credibility, because the more people believe it and live inside of it, the more real it becomes. So that's kind of strange. Um, I mean, you know that when you write a character, and you're going to all probably, as writers, have this experience, and somebody comes along and starts talking about your character that you basically pulled out of wherever, and there they are, like really intensely relating to that character, and then you realize, no, that, that character isn't unreal. That character came from inside me and is, you know, a compilation of other people. But, yeah, I just went on. Yeah, so. I'm glad. Well, because yeah. I saw, it seems like you take the art really seriously. And then, to me, it seems like you take the writing really seriously. And I think that's one of the many things that sets your comic apart from Thank other you. comics. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I, I am so intrigued by this next book of yours, I cannot get over it. As a person who adores dogs and had dogs before children, I mean, I accidentally had a child, but I always intentionally had dogs. And uh, I'm thrilled to read that. I haven't read it fully yet. I, I saw it in the store and I thought, this is brilliant, but I'm going to really get to sit down for that. Did they send it to you? No. <gasps> Oh, I'm, I'll have them send you one. I tried to get them to send you one in the mail. That's okay. I didn't get my own book for like three weeks after it had been. everybody else had it. Nobody sent me one. Oh, my and God. And I was like, wow, can I look at yours? And people were like, no. So <laughs> I was like, I, but I wrote the come back. And I was like, They're like, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. I had to buy yours. I had Fanographic send me a PDF for like podcast research but I was like I don't want to read this as a PDF and I just no. I had to track it down in person and I, it feels so good to have an object in your hands that's, I that. yeah that's that size and the feeling but, and I appreciate but the intersection of your art and your book and your writing and everything is my students wanted to know what's your writing process like what was did you script this did you thumbnail it how did you plot it out how did you, what were the steps in creating this from top to bottom for some real insiders, so getting some real insiders comic? I, I see insiders, I get it. Um, you know, I think it's kind of like a brick wall process. I would hit a brick wall with the drawings, so then I'd start writing, and I'd hit a, a brick wall with the writing, so I'd start drawing to find things out, and I'd go back and forth pretty fluidly between the two to figure things out. And I let, I let myself hit that wall, and I let myself reach the frustration point, because you do. So I would say it's the hardest thing to write. I think it might be. I've written textually a piece of cake compared to this, because you have more, you have exponentially more uh, choices with your work when you can incorporate your drawings or somebody's drawings then, you know? And um, I would just say, allow yourself to feel defeated and miserable 
because that's actually a really good feeling to have because your choices are that that numerous and and the stakes are pretty high you know you you can go really wrong um, and I have pages to prove that I went in the wrong direction and then had to go back and go you know what was I doing here you know and and then we redo things so um, Cam and Sam both had questions about your ballpoint pens. Mm -hmm. Did you really use all ballpoint pens? It's just, I just dropped some, but I mean, this is like, there's like, there are, I've gone through thousands. You could probably, you could probably, um, I don't know, this whole drawer right here, you can't really see it. Let me see if you can see it a little better. Can you? I don't know. I mean, they're you know, they're just like uh, like thousands of them, and there's like <laughs> this was our dream when we came up with this question. Was I was like, she's gonna pull out just like a pen graveyard for you. Well, I have under this bed there are boxes full of in waiting because they're you know I ordered them because I was using so many from the company. I've gone through through thousands. I don't even maybe tens of thousands. How did you settle on that as your tool? Insanity. You know, it was the stupidest thing possible thing to do. Yeah. And so I did it because it seemed like the dumbest thing to do. And is it on actual notebook paper? Well, it started out that way. Uh, the first copies of the book were all drawn right on notebook paper. And then I realized that that was like putting yourself in prison intentionally because you can't edit anything. Uh, once you've missed uh -oh. on ahead, you know, you've got those blue lines. So now there's a layer. There's a there's a notebook layer and a clown head layer, and then it, it can be dealt with. I see. I see. Um, did you tr ever try inking with something else before, like traditional comics tools? Before you came to ballpoint pens? Oh, I can do that. I have done that, but um, this was the right thing to do for a notebook. Unfortunately, it's so stunning and so beautiful. And one of their questions was, "How do you do it without?" You never have those little mucked up, inky blob things that happen from ballpoint in your art. Well, so do look at that. You see that it does one of many billions of little pads full of nublets, what I call nublets, that out of the pen. And I, I've gotten to have like a sixth sense about when a noblet is coming. And I'm so good. They really like this. <laughs> What's your favorite brand of ballpoint pen to use for this? Well, I have different favorites for different things. Um, this is my standby. This is the big round stick grip. This baby is a beauty. Uh, I have these in like four colors, so I have black, blue, green, red, and purple. Um, then I have these guys for when it's time for the heavy hitting. These are the uh, crystal, crystal, not crystal, crystal, big 15 millimeter. These guys are some big guys. You'll see some parts where there's a lot of uh, energy. If I need more energy and thick line, I use these guys. Then I've got um, these luminescent babies. These I have a whole 
pass a load of these. These are the Pento RSVP. Oh. RSVP. Because something they wanted to tell you that they didn't quite tell you. They're a little translucent. They kind of hold back, like anybody who requires a, a, a notification. Um, yeah, they're, they kind of hold back. But they're nice. They're, they're very vivid. Um, and then there are these guys. These are like the, I don't know, these are the Papermate Ink Joy. I don't know, you've probably seen these. And these have a lot, they, the best thing about them is they come in orange, which for doing Caucasian flesh tones, it's like the only way to go. Because mm -hmm. otherwise you end up putting this fine, fine layer of red, and then, you know, there's no yellow. There, there really aren't any more yellow pens. You, ha you have to pretend that. Uh, this is the closest you get to yellow. This is so nice. I've always had a hard time even giving Caucasian people a skin tone because it seems like a losing battle. But I think all you do it so well. They're, yeah, they're all. I, I always feel guilty and bad about having to deal with skin tone. You know, it's like I wish that weren't even an issue, but it, you, you have to. Well, I really like that sometimes you give people blue skin tone. I think that's appropriate. I mean, you've seen, you have a relative who needs a blue skin tone for one reason or another, don't you? I think we all do. Everyone does. Gonna, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I know that you, you know, we, we all have now, I mean, in this classroom, learned about like the incredible physical journey of you with West Nile. Um, and I have some questions for you about that, but I also want to know, I can't remember what I was going to say because I just said West Nile and then it blew my mind. Um, but so one of the students wanted to know, Sammy wanted to know what the emotional process was like working on this. And somebody wanted to know how you kept going when you couldn't walk, like when so many things were going rough. Well, and I mean, I think it was such a range of things, uh, Sammy. Uh, I think it was a range. You know, I, um, I had so many different feelings through the whole process. I think that's what you get. Um, there are parts of the book where I know what I listen to audiobooks, and there are parts of the book where I remember, I look at the pages and I can remember what audiobook I was listening to. Oh, me, me too. The book, yeah, there are part, I know, that's, that's cool. There are parts of the book I look at and I remember it was very early on when I started configuring these characters and what they would look like, and I have memories about, you know, the disability issues that figure in too. I, I think it was my therapy. I think when you can choose, when you can make your art and when you feel as truly grateful as I felt, as blessed as I felt, to be able to make art, you know, because this hand, I'll show you right now, because it's, it's only something that you can see physically. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, at that time, it was way more fluid than this hand, which is the left hand, okay? Way more fluid, now not. So doing the book was amazing, because I was able to regain the, the process of making the book caused me to regain so much more ability in this hand. Mm. Um, and then I know, because we share an agent, mm -hmm. that then you had to sell this monster of a full-color book. Was that challenging? Well, okay. Here's the, here's the secret story I'm going to tell you to bolster your sense of courage as you proceed with your endeavor. I lost my first publisher. They backed out. They said 800 pages. You're supposed to be done with this in two years, and it was going to be 200 pages, so get lost. And I had already taken advance from them, and the wonderful thing that this very benevolent publisher did is they said, look, we believe in the book. 
go with God, but we're not going to publish it. So they let me keep the advance, which was mighty nice. Yes. But then, thank you, Sierra. But then I had, <laughs> but then I had no publisher, right? So you know Holly Bemis, she's a toughie. She put that thing in a little, we went off like a couple of grifters selling encyclopedias. We went knocking on doors, you know, to find a publisher. And here's the part that you have to remember. 48 out of the 50 publishers we approached turned it down. Now remember that when you are fucking pissed off and like shit's going down and nobody seems to get it. Just remember that. Remember that. That's how that went. And now okay. it's like it went crazy. The- it went it went nuts. So but keep that in mind when people are closing doors in your face, which they may well do. If you're lucky, no doors closed in your face your whole life. Point is you just keep going. Don't give up. And for me, it was the last two publishers we approached that bid on the book. The final two out of the 40, out of the 50. So keep that in mind too. It took going to 48 doors and knocking on them to get two that would say, hey, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm so glad they did. I remember, yeah, I do. I do. I remember right. her mentioning it and I was, I was like, that's crazy, sorry. No, no, that's okay. I, I, I'm sorry. I was like an 800-page full-color book. Good luck with that. <laughs> and now, I'm so happy that you guys both just kept knocking on doors. That's Holly. Mm-hmm. You know her. She's, uh, she's, yeah. At what point did you decide to get an agent, or did you feel like it was appropriate in your career to get an agent? Can I tell you the sneaky true story? Yes. I didn't agent and I was told when I was in uh, school by one of the chief writers in the country a highly placed writer, I won't tell you her name, but you would know it right away and you'd know what she wrote she said you cannot have an agent you are writing comic books okay, so that was like the attitude at the school that I went to about comic books, Um, so I decided to go, I knew somebody that graduated from the school I did, her name was Lucy Nisley so I decided to go look on her uh, website, and I would recommend you do this. Whatever type of book you're publishing, go look it on, on an author's website and see who their agent is, because authors specialize. They all, you know, especially in New York, there are so many agents, there are so many types of books. They specialize. They, they represent a, a kind of a narrow window uh, or certain type of book. So go check them out. That's what I did. I basically stole Lucy Nisley's agent. I contacted her the moment, yeah, you know. Right. You understand this. You know, yeah. you got to get in there. You got to, like, take a chance. And it worked out well. Um, also, I was naive. I sent her the first 24 pages of the book, and I didn't hear from her for three days. And I thought, wow, this is bad. No, three days is not enough time to be upset. You know, two weeks, that's better. And you have to wait that amount of time. She really did give me us the first lecture she ever gave me was the first lecture. And that was, Emil, you don't wait three days and then, like, wonder what happened. We're agents. We're in New York. We are the top dogs. She didn't actually say that. But <laughs> that is, that's the attitude they have, and you do have to wait. So uh, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, man, we're n- I'm never going to publish a book. And, of course, she said, no, I, I'll take you, which is fabulous. And I, and I hope for every single one of you that when you go and you have your material and you go after an agent, you get that agent. And if not, keep looking because they really do specialize. And when they tell you I'm full up, they really 
some of them really are or they tell you that's not what I do that's something sometimes that's true so just keep looking going to a different one you know and it's never a bad thing if somebody says no to you to say okay thank you can you recommend somebody yeah oh you're full up well you know I really like you because of this and this and this can you think of anybody else to be a Seinfeld. But have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, Please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever but in the meantime thank you we appreciate your support and i look forward to saying your name on the podcast producer ponyo looks forward to it too that was ponyo's voice don't be scared bye Yeah, I was about to suggest that I was like, we should go to Phoebe Gleckner's house in Michigan sometime. We're in her attic. She has it, you know, outfitted like Juarez, Mexico with sand and little dolls that she positions to tell her story about the killings in Juarez. But I thought maybe me saying that was creating an unholy trio. And then that's why the growling began. I don't know if you could hear that. I'm already fascinated. So they're to represent the killings, you said? Yeah, like she's doing this long, she's doing this story. I have a question for you about this. Great. Um, she's doing this story about all these girls that went missing and were murdered and raped in Juarez, Mexico. And she's not doing it drawn because when she was drawing it, it felt too final. Like she would draw them getting raped and killed and then that was it. And so she's doing it with dolls, kind of like puppets, where she's just setting up these elaborate tableaus with these dolls and then killing them and murdering them and stuff. And then for her, it feels better because at the end of the day, she gets to kind of clean the dolls up and fix, oh, wow. you know, fix them again, and it feels better for her. Did you feel any kind of, um, I don't know, any responsibility towards your characters oh, in, yeah. in your book when you were doing bad things to them? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I still am upset about some of the things that have happened to them. And, uh, you know, nothing I can do. You know, sorry. Yeah story characters but and the story has to be told but it, it does bother you when you show things that are hard you know painful things yeah. I don't know if it's like this for you but for me I've likened it to being like in Lord of the Rings when Frodo puts on the ring did you see like the movies of Lord of the Rings and they represent it like it's like and it's you know all this like he's in this world by himself and it's all these crazy things around him and screaming and stuff and then he takes yeah. the ring off and he's in the normal world again. That's how it feels to me to draw comics that are emotional like that, to really get in it. Mm, that's, a, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, that's great. I, 
I don't know. I kind of let a lot of channeling happen while I'm drawing. I want to feel the emotions of a character. Um, I believe in that. Uh, a very good friend of mine is a pretty well-known psychic in, in Los Angeles, and we have a lot of talks uh, that are sort of like that, you know, about channeling mostly. Yeah. I also feel like it's channeling, and then I always feel like I'm going to freak out my pet portrait clients by telling them that I was like, I'm always like, it was so nice to hang out with your dog, but like their dog is dead and it's a photograph. You know, I'm like, I loved hanging out with her. It was awesome to have her in my studio and hang out with her for this long. And I always have to kind of gauge how much I want to freak them out or not freak them out because it feels right. like animal communication. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, uh, and that's, yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know. I'm, this is, this is going well. People are accepting something that has a spiritual component and they're not fully aware of it. So uh, to those people, don't worry, there's no spiritual component. To other people, totally channel so much of it. You know what I mean? You're like, the key to comics is witchcraft. So... So, and to the Christians, I say, I say, well, you know, actually, the book got recognized by the Catholic Church. That was like the first thing that, first entity that reviewed it. And Fantagraphics was like, we have never been positively reviewed by the Catholic Church. I mean, we can honestly say this is the first time. They so liked it? Kind of an interesting thing. I didn't know where we were going from there. <laughs> well, maybe I should give a copy to my mom. She's really big in Catholicism. Okay. Just, yeah. I, I thought maybe it will be the Lutherans next, and then the Methodists, and it's going to be like this. I didn't know. But then I was like, that's really strange. Yeah. Yeah, because... Yeah. There's child pornography or pedophilia and all kinds of things in the book. It was hard for me. Well, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> um, what questions have sprung to your minds that you didn't think of before we had this incredible guest on the line? Are there questions you have at this moment while we have a private audience with Emil Ferris? Sierra wants to know what the research process was like. Uh, for what? For what specific parts? Uh, for for the historical component, like the researching in the 1960s, and then like looking how somebody in the 1960s would look at the 1930s. 1960s, 1930s. That's a really interesting question. I was there during the 1960s, so it was pretty easy. I mean, some of it was kind of easy. I had some memories. But um, there were a lot of things I, I was a kid, so there were a lot of things that completely went right over my head that I had to learn. So I picked up a lot of books. I went to uh, book sales, which I love, and uh, I got books and, of course, the library on kind of a month-by-month -month 1960s diary so I could read what happened every month. And I knew then what would be happening during the month that I was writing about. Uh, in terms of the 19 the Weimar area in 1930s. I, you know, live in a part of Chicago where there are a lot of survivors, and um, you know, uh, there's there are a lot of libraries and there's a lot of access to Jewish history here. So it, it's very easy to find that history, and there's a lot of interest in it because there are so many survivors. So the libraries here carry a great number more books, I would imagine, than almost anywhere else. Um, I was able to access a lot of things. Um, I went on eBay, which is fantastic. At least it was maybe eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I got books that were published, uh, photography books that were published in Germany during the 30s so that I could actually see what does a neighborhood look like? What does, you know, what does, uh, 
you know, an eye, an optician look like? What I mean, I wanted to know what the whole world of Berlin looked like. I watched movies that were not only set in that period, but were filmed in that period. I saw silent films. Um, I, I immersed myself. I think I think the immersive experience is really important. And so I hope that answers your question pretty well. One little thing. I, I realized how quick history moves because I was in the thrift shop and I found this photo album and it was just so cheesy. And I, I found some like uh, greeting cards from the 60s and they're so bad. And I just enjoyed the hell out of them. But I realized how neither of these things would be sold now because they are so ch shitty. But it's shitty in a different way than they are now. Kind of naively shitty and brightly colored in this, we're really happy. It's the 1960s, you know, and uh, now you don't get, it's very different. There has to be a subtlety to things, you know, so. God, I love that about the 1960s. There's something so weird about it and I just love it. Yeah, it really is true. There's something manic about the 1960s, right? I've kind of just learned the word uh, hypomanic about people dealing with their problems by being like, oh, my problem. Um, and I kind of feel like the 60s embodies that in a way that's really funny to me. Oh, it's <laughs> true. That's really true. Um, I have a question, which I'm sure everyone's just been waiting to ask. But my question is, what what does your practice look like? What is your, and how, what time management kind of things do you do to make sure that you finish your work? <laughs> I have a friend who works here a lot of the time and he will say to me, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you on Facebook? You're not on Facebook, right? That's helpful. Having somebody who says, get off of Facebook, which I'm not really on that much. But then I have this little baby that you can see I got at the Goodwill for 99 cents. And it is wonderful. I say, I'm going to do this drawing. It's going to take an hour. And then it always takes three. But, you know, at least I start out uh, listening to this thing and kind of moving myself forward. Because you've got a lot of drawing to do, as you all know, if, you're, if you draw as well as write. It's so much. You know, when you're starting out, you're like, shit, i got to build a whole world, and i got all these people, and I don't let, just do one drawing. And here's another thing that I find for me. I do what I really want to, the drawing I'm really excited about, I do that drawing first for a page. Because otherwise, the page is a slog. Um, I do something I get excited about. So the drawings I'm not as excited about doing, I, I want to complete the page. It's it's already kind of beautiful because I like this drawing. So I do that one, and then I throw in those other ones that you just have to do, you know, repetitive stuff and that kind of thing. So. Time management. Um, it's, it's wavered. In the beginning, I would work 16 hours a day, every day without ceasing, because I'm insane. And then I hit a wall um, when the book got, when they said no, and I floundered. I just, I got lost. I was like, I did five years of work straight up, every day. And then they said no. And I really had to just sit back down. And I mean, it was kind of a high chair moment for me. I was like up in it, having a temper tantrum in my own head. Nobody saw that. And because I had become sick, I got lenticular eye disease, you know, from working so much with a pen. And so I decided the thing I've got to do is I've got to actually live a little bit. I've got to go to the movies sometimes. I've got to sleep. And uh, so now my time management is like, I'm human. This is a, this flesh suit. 
is fallible. So I pay it. Some, um, I hope that helps. I don't know anything more specific. I like to work at night. I don't know if anybody. Me too. Who likes yeah. to work at night. You like to work at night? Oh, night, night. So Kim, Sierra, Nikki, Samya, Haley, Maxie. I don't know any of your names. <laughs> Chuchi, Chuchi, right? And I'm going to tell you, the rest of you, okay, no. I'm just, and you're okay. If you work a day, I don't hate you. But night people, man, right? You're walking on everybody's dreams. It's all quiet in the world. Isn't that good? It's I, so good. I like feeling like I'm living second shift or I'm living the third shift. You know, like I the manager's it. gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the it's annoying it. people have gone home. I know. It's peaceful. And yes, you can be murdered. But when can't you be murdered? Right? <laughs> I mean, anyway. Oh, yeah. All right. Do you have any final words of wisdom for us? Knowing our star signs as a group, knowing that these people, some of them have never drawn comics before. Some have been drawing comics for a long time. Now they've all been drawing comics every day, all day, for the past two, three weeks, almost. Um, two weeks? Three weeks. Almost two and a half weeks. Do you have any words for us before we say goodbye? I do. Um, you're always going to come across somebody and you look at their style or you look at the, what they're doing and you think, boy, I wish I could do that. But that's a mistake. Because the only story you have to tell is your own. And you have to tell it. You have to tell it. Everybody needs it. It's important. And don't give up telling it because you haven't found the perfect way to tell it yet. You will find it as long as you continue to try. And, you know, if you're younger and you're in school, you may or may not be full-time in the workforce. It's much more challenging once you are. Um, but I will say this to you it's still critical that you don't give up on who you are and what you have to bring out of yourself, the story, your story that you need to tell. And I would say do not, no matter what, even if all you can work. I went many years, not only did I have to deal with the disability, but at, at uh, 34, I had a child. I, I was alone, I raised her myself. I didn't have, um, you know, I had to work. I had to clean people's houses is what I had to do. When the illustration work wasn't there, I went and cleaned rich people's houses in my little outfit, like a little maid. And I would say to you, whatever you have to do, do it to stay in your work. Just keep doing it. And you will be successful because the people who continue and are perseverant, they win. They really do. And I wish you absolutely everything and joy in doing your work. Thank you so much. Will you guys give a hand for Emil? Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.